Welcome to Gu Dao Jingxing, Walking the Timeless Way, a podcast that digs deeply into the ancient texts of Tao Te Ching to uncover its timeless wisdom and discuss how to apply it to today's chaotic world. I'm Ian Felton, practicing psychotherapist and coder. I'm joined by my co-host, executive coach and consultant, David Wong. Good morning, David. Good morning, Ian. Yeah, thanks. That seems pretty um, suitable that we're having a, a chapter on on the military and yeah. um, talking about com- compassion and warfare and that sort of thing the day before Memorial Day when we're thinking about all of the people who died in, in the course of... Um, military operations, people making these decisions, decisions whether to advance or retreat. I I don't, um, we definitely didn't plan the timing of it, but it's, it certainly changes the, the tone a little bit, just knowing that we're covering this the, the day before we're, we're thinking about those people who have died and, and sacrificed for, um, our protection. Mm Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions I know we were wanting to look at and maybe in in the um, revisiting this last line of chapter 69 where it says, therefore, when opposing armies try to overcome each other, the compassionate one will win. Mm-hmm. Win's a pretty big word. And I kind of would want to get an idea from you on on what do you imagine Lao Tzu might have meant by the word when, when it comes to the military. Is, is it, you know, just about taking or keeping power or, or what do you imagine goes into this concept of, of winning in the military? Mm-hmm. Uh I think it's probably uh, beyond just uh, uh, our conventional notion of winning. It's, you know, I, I'm thinking of a word, sus- sustainability, like uh, lasting longer uh, along that line. So in other words, uh, beyond just like conquering and overcoming, uh, there's something more there's like, um, you know, something uh, continue to grow and, and I guess, and thrive. That's mm. what I consider to be more of a winning as opposed to just one heroic or victorious act. Mm. So winning a lot of times and at least a kind of a, a Western view where we think about winning and losing being black and white where you know either either your flag is still flying at the end of the war or the other people's flag is flying at the end of the war and and nothing else really matters it sounds like you're thinking about a longer term vision of of winning and also 
what does it look like in the aftermath of, of winning? Maybe not just for the victor, but for, you know, the, the people that have, have lost as, as well. Right. What, what's the end of winning? I mean, that's the question. What's mm. the aim, right? What's the purpose of winning? Is it just a kind of a satisfying, uh, our own ego, uh, just to show off like we are bigger and stronger than other mm. people, or maybe more pragmatic thing is, uh, we achieve some kind of outcome or a state of being, uh, that kind of, uh, uh that, that facilitates living. Mm. So it's really kind of digging into that. We're looking at more at mm-hmm. kind of this this big picture and and harmony that yeah. that Lao Tzu talks about. So on some level, winning is um, probably relates to maintaining that kind of harmony somehow. Yeah, yeah. In in, in some way, maybe maybe a a a, a period like a a. a a period of time mm. uh, to use conflicts. Uh, I'm certainly not thinking of like, I, I think conflicts are real, at least in the realm of, you know, of the world of forms, mm. right? It's a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, 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 that, it's a integral, integral part of the human condition. Yeah. For whatever reason. So I'm not denying it. I'm just thinking, acknowledging it, but also use our intelligence or wisdom to figure out what's a better way of, uh, you know, understanding it and uh, then addressing it. That's the ultimate thing. Like, in other words, is war a, a choice or is war inevitable? Um, I sort of believe that as a human being, uh, at least we have a long time of history, of course, you know, sometimes people say, uh, I think it's a Mark Twain who said, uh, history doesn't necessarily, uh, repeat itself, but it does rhyme. It does rhyme yeah. like a poem, right? For sure. Yeah. So there are some kind of a recurring patterns, but sometimes I also believe that uh, we can gain something from it. Yeah. It's not like, you know, we are all enslaved by Mm -hmm. the trapping of history. Mm -hmm. Our consciousness can expand somewhat, but still, you know, that human nature is, is very fundamental. It's slow to change. Very slow. Very slow to change as we can witness today. And just like you were saying, I mean, all the evidence that we have so far is that to be human, for there to be humans on the earth does mean that there'll be war. We, we don't have any history where there hasn't been war. There's right. constantly war in the planet. There always has been. Today, there's I mean, how many wars are, are going on right now? I mean, we know a- Afghanistan, Syria, right? Li- Libya is still in the middle of a civil war. Um, I mean, even looking at the United States, I mean, I think we could say 
what we've seen in some of the cities around the United States is warfare. Maybe it's not all out war, but there's certainly, it would look like a war from above. If you didn't have any context, you would say like, oh yeah, that's a, a war. Right. So war is everywhere on, on the, the planet. I shouldn't say everywhere, but war is constant on it's happening somewhere on the planet at all times. Yeah. 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 And so as far as we know, like there is something about the human condition that means that it's going to happen. And so what can we do for our, our consciousness to, Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to make it sound so trivial, but like make the the best out of it. If it's going to happen, like how can we minimize the effects of war? Right. I like the word minimize. I think to minimize it, uh, the in order to minimize it, we need to understand it. Mm. Uh, in my uh, in my line of work, you know, executive coaching. Uh, in the corporate world, uh, through that window, uh, one of the very um, frequently uh, covered topics is about conflicts, you know, how to resolve conflicts within the corporate world. Of course, it's, you know, it's, it's very different in, in a lot of ways from, you know, the peace and war, <laughs> you know, among people, among mm-hmm. countries. Uh, but there's some underlying similarities that are learned from that work. Uh, for example, you know, in some way, you know, conflict is not necessarily uh, a, a bad thing. You know, it's a reality, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. If you kind of manage well, manage the tension, you can use that, see it as a creative tension. Mm. Well, that's a but I think that's a very positive way of looking at it, right? Even though it creates discomfort among the people at meetings, but from another perspective, you know, all of these uh, conflicts, um, you know, you know, people kind of debate and you know really disagree with each other. You know, they end up like having some uh, uh, some better or more robust solutions. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but the thing is, it can get very can get out of control because of, you know, the egos of human beings, mm-hmm. you know, the egos of senior executives, the egos of different departments within organizations and ego of teams. So how do you channel that uh, kind of an ego thing? into a into a you know kind of a shared behaviors mm-hmm. that can create you know more uh productive discussions that's always something uh that you know i talked with uh my clients uh kind of a to strategize to analyze the situation and to find out a better outcome in other words to minimize it and to take advantage of it instead of like being driven by it. How do you try to help people kind of see around their egos or put them off to the side enough so that there can still be, you know, something productive that, that happens? 
Well, uh, I think it depending on the uh, the the executive, him or herself. I think it has a lot to do with self awareness.、Mm-hmm. You know, some people even、uh, don't see that、uh, that ego is at play in a lot of the opinions they have.、Mm-hmm. Right? They 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 tend to see,、uh, you know, they don't seem to have a like a mirror. It's always like. The other, <laughs> the、yeah. other party's faults.、Mm-hmm. I think that takes、uh, time and also takes, you know, self reflection and maybe some feedback from other people. That sometimes we use like a more like a three sixty interviews, but in、mm-hmm. a blinded way,、mm-hmm. so that we can identify the themes、uh, that surface from、uh, interviewing with people. Kind of working closely with this person, I love it, and and that was actually I was just watching a video yesterday on, it was a a SEAL training team, and they use the exact same approach that you're talking about, where they go out and they do training missions, and then at、yes. the end of the training missions, it's a blind peer reviewed three sixty、yes. assessment. Yeah. So, so that how the decision is made on who gets to stay in the team or not, it doesn't come from yes some like objective observer. It actually comes from the people who are interacting with each other who are saying like, oh yes, this this person was a high performer. This person really lifted、mm-hmm. the team up. Or maybe people said like, yeah, working with so and so every time it was a problem, and we were always kind of struggling because of. Them, but it comes from the team. Exactly, it's like the objectivity comes from that、uh, collective subjective. Yes.、Right? Yes. So, in other words, every you know, like every time when I、uh, try to gather the feedback from people and work through the data,、uh, it's really, I think,、uh, becoming an, it's both science and art form to try to make sure.、Uh, You know,、uh, different views are reflected, but also at the same time, you don't let、um, uh, because it's by nature is subjective. You know, like say one of those people who provide feedback、uh, to this executive also are one of the peers who are competitors to this yeah, person, right? Right? Yeah, and so they're one. They they want to try to like. Knock a couple points off of their score. Exactly, but the good thing is you have built into the structure of that process、uh, a, a more of a you know like a, a cross section. It's not、mm-hmm. just one person. It's not your direct boss.、Um, it, it's like peers. It's、uh, your boss, maybe your boss's boss, and then you your subordinates. Each one of those has its own. Uh, structural biases.、Mm-hmm. In other words, like you know, the subordinates tend to,、uh, you know, some people are mu- much more straight and upfront, and some people are more reserved because、mm-hmm. they are fear of like if they say something, you know, more、uh, harsh or maybe、uh, you know too honest about it, then something will come back to them. So、mm-hmm. you, you can see that subordinates tend to. Have a more rosy view,、mm. but that's also can be an indicator of the culture there because you know people don't 
you know, necessarily feel psychologically safe to say. Yes. It makes me wonder mm-hmm. kind of two things that came up for me when you were talking about that. One, the notion of even having a commander in chief when it comes to, to warfare, that if you get like one person at the top, who's just got this giant mm-hmm. ego and maybe they've got some vendetta against some other country or, or yeah. whatever, some personal reason. I mean, that's not a good situation versus if you actually had more of this like collective mm. get, get objectivity through collective subjectivity Mm-hmm. Um, making decisions when it comes to warfare seems like it would it would also uh, apply in that sense that you know if if you're doing it with 360 peer reviews and a corporation, right. Right. wouldn't it make sense to also come to decisions around warfare in a similar way? Get a a broad um, cross section of approaches you know, hawks and doves and everything right. in in between people right. who are who are real experts though i'm not talking about like just asking the average person on the street their yeah opinion yeah. but people who are geopolitically and militarily inclined and have them all assess yeah. i mean it, it seems like that's one way of getting some of the ego out where a commander-in-chief that can just say like I declare war, that doesn't seem like a, it seems like you're going to end up in, in the kind of trouble that Lao Tzu says countries shouldn't get into. I like your perspective. I, I, I like the way you are connecting the, the points. Um, my sense is that a lot of the fruits uh, harvested, uh, harvested from uh, behavioral research or psychology I feel nowadays are used here and there uh, in different settings. Like, for example, in corporate settings, the way hmm. I, guess I described to you, I feel they haven't been really embraced in a more mindful and deliberate way, uh, let's say, in, in government. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think mm-hmm. in government, there's a lot of uh, old way of thinking, hmm. uh, like a uh, almost like back to the maybe 50s and 60s, like wow. Cold War thinking. Wow. Right? Yeah, I, I, I sort of feel like if humans have a chance to succeed in the future, uh, we should be more and more able to apply a lot of the our understanding and the insights of about human behaviors, mm. ourselves and others, and then to use that to guide us to resolve conflicts. But that's I feel like there's a long, long way to go. So that that's just, why yeah. that's why I feel like what you are connecting, you know, maybe in the future it could happen. I mean, there is a possibility. Maybe it takes a while for that, you know, at the government, in the government mm-hmm. setting, that happens. I, I mean, I've mm-hmm. already experienced it in the corporate setting because <laughs> at the end of the day, corporates, uh, of course, they have their own, um, you know, their, their other things that, uh, that it creates its own uh, problems, right? Mm-hmm. Like a greed and like very profit driven. Mm-hmm. But some of it, I feel in order to be a productive enterprise, right? You have to create results. You cannot let, 
you have to find a way. I mean, even that profit motive is driving people to think about, okay, we have these bunch of individuals who have all their egos. How can we figure out a way to work together? Mm-hmm. So there's the efforts and then there's the willingness to try to use, you know, human psychology to do some of that. It's not perfect, no. but at least I think in, in different sectors, you know, mm-hmm. it's experimenting something. Yeah. The, the, the psychological and behavioral research is there and I just think it's so important what you're pointing out that in the corporate sector, because there's so much competition, you, you're always trying, I mean, the companies that succeed are always trying new ways to get an edge to, to stay ahead of the game. And sure. Some of that is just like swinging your big stick around. If you've got, you know, if you're Amazon, you can just bully entire states into bending to your will just so you put a, you know, a factory there or, or whatever. And that's kind of right. like the, the old mentality of, of doing things, right? right? Just right. like right. using sheer political force, but in a more sophisticated way, corporations are also trying, um, you know, organizational configurations and decision-making processes and training and all kinds of things so that the organization stays on top but government doesn't do that because there's no motivation to because it's a it's a monopoly yeah it feels like it has some very uh brute force like uh you know military or something right because it's true right if if you go against the government they'll arrest you exactly exactly so that's why i feel um you know what you're saying reminds me of another thing which i've been thinking recently um, okay, nowadays, let's say in the United States, you see government saying, now we have to encourage our businesses not to, you know, uh, go, uh, you know, go global, mm-hmm. you know, to uh, create jobs in other countries. We mm-hmm. should like uh, come to the United States, right? Mm-hmm. We should buy mm-hmm. uh, the U.S. products, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, my... Uh, my sense is it's not that easy. It's not that easy. The reason right. why I feel now, uh, again, you know, the global capital capitalists, uh, they have so much power now that they may not listen to unless the government is create conditions, you know, uh, for them to come back and build in the United States. Mm -hmm. That same applies to China too. In the early 80s, the late 70s, uh, the Chinese government and local governments uh, are so, they are so keen on attracting foreign investments. So every time, you know, when the foreign uh, business people came Mm -hmm. to China, Mm -hmm. they treat them like an emperor so well, Mm -hmm. and then they give them preferential preferential uh, tax breaks right mm-hmm. in order to attract them nowadays you know it feels like they are uh not uh, you know because china has developed and grown yeah. they're actually treating a lot of the multinational companies uh not as nice as before 
Yeah. So they don't so need that, them. They don't need them. So any kind of attitude by the government, whoever is attracting uh, these businesses, capitals, and uh, funds and ideas, I think needs to emulate the the lowliness of the river. Remember, mm -hmm. like in earlier chapter, we remember mm -hmm. we, we study, you know, how do you like the ocean? In order to attract all the good things mm -hmm. to you, you have to be lowly. Yeah, you can't be arrogant. You cannot just like you. You have to create the conditions for that to come to you. Mm -hmm. That happened in the United States when you know during the World Wars. You know when a lot of the scientists. Uh, smart people, including Einstein, came to this country, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's attractiveness of the, you know, because America is like a magnet. Mm -hmm. So for any country to be an, a magnet, you have to build an environment like that, regardless of countries, like whatever you have, you know, so that's why, you know, China might feel like, Oh, we can build on our own, but then you know how your development, uh, from mm -hmm. what I observe, benefited from integrating with the world and learning mm -hmm. from the world. Mm -hmm. People coming back and forth. Now you believe you can be on your own. How long it will take? Mm. So that's the pitfall of them. Like say, well, we don't need them more. We can be, you know, we can. You know, you, there's the arrogance in there. Mm. So when that arrogance starts popping up, then it's it's it discourages no one. You know, yeah. like people, uh, smart people, they will find elsewhere. They maybe mm -hmm. help find other humble countries. Maybe mm -hmm. it will take a while. Maybe you know they won't be able to build the supply chain immediately in Vietnam or other. Maybe other countries are not as big. Right as China, there's mm -hmm. an advantage, but if that arrogance is built up, then if if you don't have that self awareness, it will hurt you eventually. Mm -hmm. That's the natural law. I mean, it makes sense why Lao Tzu would say, you know, I I dare not advance an inch, but rather re <laughs> retreat. Like, yes. you might you might win through advancing. But if the world around you is looking at you like you're this invading bully, yeah, they're they're all going to distance themselves from you. Exactly, exactly. So that mindset is not even we're talking about self-interest is not serving you well because that kind of ego thing it, it backfires on you. It it doesn't protect you. Yeah, I mean, even thinking, I mean, for some reason, the, the vision, when talking about arrogance and, and power, there's almost no better symbol of that when Derek Chauvin had his knee on George Floyd's neck and how he was kind of just like, he had that arrogant he posture does. on top of him. Even like and, uh, at the time when the verdict was casting, I see the, uh, the, mm -hmm. the, uh, his facial expression and eyes mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. uh, inside in, in, in I can read into him still mm -hmm. that defiance and arrogance. Yeah, he didn't do anything wrong. Right, 
and and so but in that moment it's like we can almost see the effect of what Lao is saying in chapter 69 i mean look at the emotion that people reacted with at seeing someone so arrogant and so confident just using their power to to bully humiliate and and ultimately murder someone who couldn't do anything yeah 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 almost i feel like the grievances whatever fully justified or not justified through that moment through that uh that video that nine minute video it's becomes a that video becomes an outlet right mm -hmm. it's a becoming a a symbol of that mm -hmm. yeah and, and and so even tying then maybe some of the stuff that we were talking about earlier about you know, governments not having necessarily a commander in chief, but taking more of a cross-sectional view of of experts to come to their decisions, um, and and doing peer reviews and things like that in corporations. I'm wondering if there's any room for that in police forces too. I mean, we've talked. There's been all kinds of ideas about police reform and defunding the police and abolishing mm. the police and and mm. all kinds of realms of things. And one thing that's come up has been the police union and how powerful they are at kind of like growing their right. power through right. the union. I wonder if there's some kind of like peer review process that like how we were talking about these 360 assessments that could also be used within the police forces to where it was anonymous, but still knowing that if you had some system set up to where getting rid of the poor performers, like people like Derek oh, Chauvin yes. Yes. would yeah. benefit everyone yes. incentivizing it. So again, like using the psychological research that we have available, yes. but incentivizing police officers within the union to assess accurately so yes. that, so that the poor performers get booted out and they're not, in those positions anymore. Yeah, I I don't see conceptually. I don't see the, any reason for not, you know, trying some of these methods. Uh, and also, uh, the more you do it, the more trust that you can uh, build. Um, hmm. I, I think it's 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 almost like a, a reinforcing because mm -hmm. it's, it happens similarly in. 360 reviews or even like uh, employee survey in companies uh, if, if it's used well uh it, if it's made to use well um mm -hmm. to as a tool for self and organizational improvement mm -hmm. uh over a period of time you know it will build trust if it's used poorly as just a kind of read kind of a trying to understand i'm uh, not trying to uh know what people are thinking but not really like genuinely like trying to improve so using it just for spying for example whatever you know whatever yeah. because sometimes leaders can be very anxious they mm -hmm. uh, they see the all the signs of people's leaving you know dysfunctionality mm -hmm. but they, they they couldn't put their fingers on it so they uh, they could say, oh, let's do an employee survey. So, uh, you know, it takes money and time and, and, and also people 
at first take it very seriously. Uh, but then they see like, you know, the companies, the leaders are paying lip service to it. Mm, and basically mm -hmm. they don't yeah. do anything about it. Over a period of time, you can see even the response rate is down, is down or people mm -hmm. are not taking any time to write the comments anymore. You have to, it, it has to be, it has to be a true 360. Like it, the, all of the circuit yes. has to be completed. If you only go to the feedback stage, but then don't actually implement any of it, then right, you've, right, you've right. lost trust. I've experienced right. that too. Yeah, I mean, I've why, been a place where, yeah. Yeah, why asking me if you don't mm -hmm. do want to do anything, right? It's mm -hmm. like waste my time just to uh, take the survey. Oh, yeah. sorry. So, so go ahead. Oh, that's okay. But just that I've, you know, just experienced that in organization where, you know, someone comes in and they're the new person and we're going to change things. And right. so they go, go around and spend three months, you know, talking to everyone and all this stuff. And it's like three months later, there's, there's nothing actionable. There's no, nothing's anything different. The same dysfunction was there that was there before but there's been this whole like circus show and right um, right 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 and, exactly but everyone sees through it they're like yeah he came in and talked all this talk but like has anything changed and everyone's like nope and so then now no one takes him seriously because he didn't follow through with anything yeah i think just as with our individuals I mean, change is really hard, right? Uh, for individual, and it's even far harder for an or complex organization. It, it it requires, you know, uh, a discernment to prioritize. Mm -hmm. Like, one need to be uh, changed, taken care of first. Maybe mm -hmm. that thing uh, is uh, improved, and everything else will follow. You know, things like that. Maybe. Uh, certain things are really hard to change. Maybe we can pick some low hanging fruit and do that and learn from it. Right. That's the mm -hmm. kind of art part of change. But I find a lot of times, you know, uh, the thing that employees start to feel like, okay, let me not be too hopeful is, you know, something big, something happened and then you don't hear that anymore. So, it's all swept under the carpet and then it's business as usual. Yeah. And, and so it, it keeps bringing me back to that concept of, of winning again and just everything that we've been talking about on, mm -hmm. on some level, it feels like if you lose the hearts of people, you've, you've lost, even if you've won, like to, to win means you have to keep the hearts of, of most people anyway. Absolutely. That that's why uh, Lao Tzu said uh, that compassion. I think the compassion, first of all, the compassion is, I mean, to your own people. Like, say, if you have a war with your enemy, you'd better make sure that your soldiers are willing to die for whatever, right? The cause, mm -hmm. right, from their hearts, mm -hmm. and then you. Uh, you know, they have their families to support them, then you have the whole people to support them. If you cannot find a compelling reason, that war won't last very long, right? Mm -hmm. Or people won't wholeheartedly. I mean, throughout yeah. history, we've seen that. 
Um, yeah, people will try to. Yeah, they'll fight it as 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 actively or passively as they can. Yeah, as they can. Yeah. So that's the compassion toward your own people.、Uh, I would say not necessary to your enemy, but as we discussed several times, I find that goodwill is also a smart way, a low cost way, of of fending off. Threats. Tell、right? me more about that. Well, that means you don't.、Uh, first of all, you don't create、uh, many sources of hostility.、Mm. You, you have to have a way of creating a good ecosystem、um, to kind of、uh, minimize.、Uh, So people don't hate you. <laughs>、mm. If you create、yeah. something, you you have a behavior that other people resent you and hate you and try、mm. to、uh, collude to fight against you.、Mm-hmm. I mean, that in itself is a very uh, uh, very costly thing to to <laughs> to maintain, right?、Mm-hmm. So you better、mm-hmm. not. You, you try to create, you know, maybe do do the right thing or do kind things.、Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. There's a lot of goodwill around you. It's like almost like a, some. It's like an armor in some way. Armor as a compa- compassion as an armor. Yeah, because the the armor then comes from again the the support of the people. Yeah, the support of people and people. You know, naturally, if you have goodwill with as many people, maybe there's some a few of them. Who are really are your competitors or are like, you know, trying to put you down, and you know, but the other people may say, "Oh, why should I do that?" Right? So they, they don't necessarily will follow, you know, these,、uh, you know,、uh, com- uh, you know, conspirators, you know, try to pull、mm-hmm. you down because、mm-hmm. you have very good will with them. Yeah. Why would I? Why would I listen to this person who's conspiring against? The person I have goodwill against, you're going to be like, oh no, like I'm going to distance myself from them, and also let the people、yeah. that I care about know, like, hey, there's these people conspiring against you. Where if you've been treated poorly and without compassion, you're going to be like, yeah, I'm going to help you because these people are jerks. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that's the one scenario. The other scenario is, of course, when you、uh, start to see some kind of a.、Um, Escalation of the conflict, right? Then I think to keep it small and under control,、mm-hmm. kind of minimize it. Like、yeah. from another chapter, we learn also、uh, that the sages they tend to see things while they are small, right? Before、mm-hmm. they they get out of control. Yes,、so、that's another way of like de-escalate things. You don't、mm. just for whatever reason. You know, let it balloon into something. Yeah, where are the rum? Where are the rumblings? Let me go and address it. Early. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like those things、uh, put all together,、uh, I think it's the loudest maybe、uh, notion of why you know compassion is the best strategy. <laughs> and it's so hard to do. It is. It is. I think.、Uh, so what? Let me ask you then,、uh, from your observation, 
what makes it harder? What are the one or two hardest things for us as humans? Well, I think when we see things in other people that we don't like, it's also very hard to acknowledge that maybe not to the same degree, but it's there are aspects of our shared humanity. I mean, on some level, we have the, that potential to be the same way as this person that we're seeing that is making our our hackle stand on end. So some of it's just a rejection of our own wholeness of a human being, which is can be really flawed and um, we don't like to see it. So sometimes when we see it in other people, you know, just only allowing it to exist in them, we can direct our criticism, judgment, hatred toward them rather than acknowledging like, oh, you know what? Like there's some of all that stuff inside me too. And, you know, I don't know what the circumstances are for them right now. And if I can accept that, you know, what they're expressing to some extent is also inside of, of me Mm -hmm. and then kind of let that compassion blossom kind of knowing, you know, I wouldn't have chosen to to be born this way if I had a choice in it, but I didn't have a choice. And this is just the, the species that I am. Um, so I think some of it is that just that inner reflection that a lot of times it's hard to do in the moment. Mm-hmm. Do you think compassion, I sort of feel like a mixed view uh, from different sources. Some people seem to give me the impression that compassion is a natural part of human being is natural to us. Hmm. And some people say it's actually, it's more unnatural, like, you know, competition and, and trying to uh, uh, create a different person into your own image, kind of to conquer them, to subject them Hmm. is the natural. Well, I think first there's, it's contextual, right? Like I think anybody's capable of doing, being in a state where we lean more, where it's easier or more difficult. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if we're at a family gathering, Mm -hmm. it might be easier to have compassion than if we're at a, um, maybe a, a, a work conference where we're going to be evaluated or something mm-hmm. like that. So there's, I mean, I think the con it's inseparable from the context first, like the environment that we're in. Mm-hmm. So I think just first there's conditions that, you know, make it easier, more natural to be compassionate. I mean, if you're at a mindfulness retreat, it's probably pretty easy <laughs> to be compassionate. Yeah. Right. No, right, no, right. no one's talking. Everyone's just trying to like yeah, create this yeah. peaceful environment. Yeah. So yeah, if, if you start feeling angry right off the bat, you're going to be like, I'm at a mindfulness retreat. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you took that same person and let's say like the week before, maybe they're at the mindfulness retreat because a month earlier they were at a bar and got in a, a bar fight yeah, with someone yeah. over some yeah. stupid thing. Right. And, and maybe they were court ordered to do a mindfulness retreat. Yeah. So based on what you're saying here, can we safely conclude that we are 
multifaceted. We are very, it, you know, our behavior are very context driven. Yeah. In other words. Totally. Yeah. So we have to create environments. If, if we want to create compassion in our society, I mean, it's tough to do in America because like there's some people that say that the government should just stay out of everyone's life but i like think a, like a, oh, it's a like a more like a blanket statement in other yeah. words like okay yeah that that sounds extreme to me like yeah say, like libertarians yeah. that are like we should just have as small government as as possible but if we think about because the private sector isn't going to create they don't operate at the societal level without a profit motive if right. we want to create com compassionate societies yeah the private sector isn't going to do that. That has to be a function of government. So kind of knowing that compassion is contextual, what do we have to do to create conditions in society so that people feel more compassionate toward each other? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good question. Yeah. The other thing I'm, I'm thinking of since we humans are very contextual driven, can we, I mean, just for the fun, you know, what if people are becoming so self-aware, uh, they will, uh, like, let's say, take us, for example. Uh, you know, when I get very competitive, I will tell you, Yin, I'm going to wear my competitive hat. So let's, let's, let, uh, like, let's start playing chess together. So yeah. we're, we're, like, letting each other know, mm -hmm. here's my role of mm -hmm. being competitive now. Yeah. Well, you know, here's another situation. Now I'm becoming more compassionate. So let's let's not uh, uh, you know mix the situation. I mean that kind of a self awareness versus you know we all are so identified with one thing, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know that applies that belief that principle applies to every situation. Mm, yeah, we try to force ourselves into this rigid identity. Yeah, it's just not not true. Like it's it's okay to be com competitive in the right context. Or, or even what seems to be like a lot of people say, oh, you need to be very consistent. Like, yeah. let's, you know, where does that mm -hmm. come from, right? Right. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of inconsistency, you know, incoherence in our behavior, but why yeah. do we pretend that we are like all consistent in the same way. I mean, if there's a monitor there, yeah. just looking at objectively at anybody, mm -hmm. we're not consistent. We, no. we adapt, you know, from situation to situation mm -hmm. to come up with the best, uh, uh, you know, scenario output, uh, you know, outcome for us. Yeah, and then we put on these personas, which is the illusion of consistency, yeah. so that you know everybody else feels like oh i i know david like but, <laughs> but what they know yeah. is his persona the thing that he projects to create consistency when he knows that he's not consistent yeah yeah and and worse than that we start to if we see somebody's like behavior or beliefs are not the same as us then you know we'll we'll, we'll kind of naturally Right, naturally mm -hmm. see that oh that's a danger that's that's mm -hmm. something you know we need to it's not part of part of us it's somebody else you know so all these things this thinking i don't know maybe you know if we're enlightened enough we start to recognize it and, mm -hmm. and laugh about it and mm -hmm. make fun of it 
Mm-hmm. Well, that uh, at least you know that will will uh, at least get half of the the uh, Nobel Prize Peace Medal, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Because I think the world it seems like it's getting so serious, you know, yes. so um, loud, so wedded to something, you know, yeah. one way or the other, you know, not willing to retreat. Yeah, yeah. And and so I love that humor as an antidote to the mentality of I I won't retreat an inch on this. Like I'm not going to budge at all because like it's so serious <laughs> and it's all wrapped up in who I am and my ego. Yeah. And going back to again, like to have compassion. I I, I love this idea of, of blending humor and compassion together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why? Oh, tell me more about it. Uh, Because even compassion, I think we get this idea that it has to be serious. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. And I don't know that I've even ever heard of anybody talking about it this way, but like a a hu- like compassion with a sense of humor. Like what? Like how does that? Like I'm trying to make sense of like what what that would be. Like to to have compassion. Which involves empathy, but like, if we can have a sense of humor about ourselves, yeah. even if someone else is yeah. kind of in a situation, it's it's not to make light of it, but still to just recognize the absurdity of of course, of, it. Yeah. of course, yeah. That humor, I think, there's a playfulness, right, in、mm-hmm. all things. There's like the, you know, the. Absurdity, as you say,、uh, like for example, compassion, right?、Mm-hmm. I cannot tolerate. Well, I use the word tolerate. <laughs> I, I cannot, cannot tolerate. Right? I can't. I mean, seriously, I、yeah. I, I mean that. I cannot、yeah. tolerate somebody who pretend to be compassionate. Yeah. Like, you know, create that persona of a, uh, you know, of a of a sage or a guru or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All sacrificing、mm-hmm. for other people. I feel like, you know, it's not real. No, it's 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 a、uh, it's a carnival show. Right, right. Sometimes I let's say I see a movie. Maybe in the movie there's a very you know, uh, uh, let's say a bad guy or a criminal, but suddenly, you know,、uh, there's a maybe one situation that guy has this spark of compassion toward.、Mm-hmm. Somebody who needs、yeah. help, right? He wants to. So, re- he's going to redeem himself all of a sudden.、Uh, yeah, yeah, or something that maybe even without、uh, his intentionality. Sure. Yeah. That thing emerges because、mm-hmm. it's already there. I mean, it's just like the right moment、mm-hmm. that brings that out. Yeah. I thought that is much more of an example of a compassion than you know somebody is like day in and day out and sell himself or herself as a compassionate person. Sure, like all these organizations that spring up around, whether it's、um, like election fraud or social justice issues, and they act like they're in the interests of having compassion for certain people or whatever. But most of the time, it's just people separating other people from their money, and they、yeah. don't do. Yeah, they're not doing anything. They're just、yeah. taking people's money. 
Yeah, yeah. I remember you mentioned a word uh, called uh, virtue signaling. Uh, virtue signaling, grifter. Yeah. That's another word that I use for uh -huh. those kind of people. Yeah. Right, right, right. So what if we, you know, we're trying to be helpful and friendly to other people, at, but at the same time, mm -hmm. we have the capacity to be, uh, uh, to, 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 to uh, laugh about it and to, uh, you yep. know, self-criticize ourselves. I mean, Exactly. That and will... so that makes me think of um, com comedians and how like how difficult comedians have said how tough their job has been because of how seriously everybody takes everything these days. And it seems like there's a role for using comedians as kind of like the canary in the coal mine, coal mine as this, right. you know, what's the state of your country right now? If right. if 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 comedians can't make anybody laugh then maybe that's a sign that the, yeah, yeah there's some toxic yeah. gas in the society exactly do you think we now have a comedians like maybe in the 90s like uh you know seinfeld or or some other you know like really funny things now i, I don't know i don't know uh, do, do you recently have you recently come across some good shows that are able to kind of uh, laugh at you know not particular side, but really mm -hmm. like the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I think the the people who have been as far as the consistent and have, have done a great job of just showing mm -hmm. ridiculousness, it, regardless of the political uh, affiliation, South Park. Ah, South Park, yeah. Mm -hmm. They will make fun of kind of ridiculousness in, in any form. They've done it for decades. You know, they, they, they always, and, and of course, someone's always offended by, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. you know what? That's part of life, right? Like yeah. if you, if you're someone that thinks that you should be able to get through life without being offended, yeah, you're incredibly naive and entitled. Exactly. Exactly. Like yeah. everyone's going to get offended by things. That's a part of life. And you know, what you find valuable, I might be offended by and vice versa. Right. So to say that any one person should be able to get through life without being offended. I mean, that person must be so narcissistic and self-centered yep. to think, to think that, you know, their one worldview about what's offensive or not should apply to everyone. So to answer your question though, I think South Park, I think South they're, Park, they, yeah. They they kind of have the um, they still have the the gold medal as as far as being able to make fun of the ridiculous things that that people do in society. I see. Okay, I'm seeing that uh, our time is uh, running out. Mm -hmm. Like maybe it's time to uh, wrap up our conversation for today. All right, David. Well, I really appreciate uh, again us us talking and and. I think we we did a, a pretty good job of of staying on on our task, but I also love just the little tangents that we take and the little places that we end up exploring these little nooks and, and crannies and right. un, uncharted territory. That's the nature of Tao, right? That's the yes. water flowing. We have a like direction to flow, and here there there's a detour into the middle. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. Thanks, David, and thanks to the listeners for joining us in exploring 
outaging while we're all trying to understand how to walk the timeless way. <laughs>